got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Joy Damiani. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode, our guest is Michael Iasili, a scholar and writer in Russian history and a political scientist whose work centers on the development of the women's movement in Russia during the 19th and 20th centuries and on uncovering the underestimated role of women in Soviet state development. A lot of the language you're seeing is sort of uh, painting a broad brush, right? All of Russia should pay, right? Instead of the regime, the Putin regime must pay. Um, And what that's doing is it's creating a xenophobia. First, if you are into what we are up to here at What the Folk, we would super love it if you could let us know with a five-star rating or a review because that'll help us to grow our sweet little What the Folk fam into a ginormous one, and that'll be really great. Um, You can also follow us on your favorite platforms, and you can give us love in the form of money via the PayPal at whatthefolkpod at gmail.com. That's also how you get in touch with us if you need to. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, We're glad that you're here, and we've got a great episode for you, chock full of interesting history, trippy electronic music, and jokes I made while mixing weed strains. So stay tuned. Um, Now to start us off, here's Michael Anthonia with a song called Scary Days off his album Utopia. Michael Anthonia is a solo artist from New York. His music blends a variety of sounds ranging in the genres of pop, rock, new age, and electronic.
welcome to the pod, Michael Yazelli. Yeah. Yeah, silly. Oh my god, I already messed yeah. it up. <laughs> you, want to, you want me to? You want me to? You want me to do a Sicilian it for you? Hey, Michael, you yeah. silly. Good to be. Yes. Good to see you. <laughs> good, good to see the both of you. Yeah. So we're gonna start you off with our um, introductory question to all of our lovely guests. Um, how is your apocalypse going? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I'm listening to a lot of Grimes. Uh, I don't know if you know Grimes. Uh, <laughs> yes. She's, uh, oh, nice. Sort of a contemporary artist, um, really into her music. I've been making a lot of music, doing a lot of writing. Um, what else? I mean, you know, it's just, you know, you think about what people have gone through with this pandemic. It's been so hard for so many people, um, for children in particular, you know, in school mm-hmm. and dealing with mental health issues with their families, um, you know, increased rates of domestic violence. And now with this increasing uh, move toward war um, in the East, it's just so um, um, difficult to grapple what the future holds for so many people. Totally. Um, maybe before we start asking questions, I realized, how about you tell us a little bit about the work you do? And because um, we brought you on to talk about um, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I am a scholar of uh, Russian and Eastern European studies. In particular, I focus on uh, the Russian revolutionary period, late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, I take particular focus in examining the women's movement um, uh, and seeing how uh, early populism uh, affected and influenced the way in which women mobilized uh, people uh, during the revolution to, one, overthrow the czarist regime um, and also create political power for women, um, something that's very underestimated when we talk about Russian history, in particular Soviet history. You know, most of the narrative is dominated um, by masculine characteristics, you know, Lenin, Stalin, and um, uh, all those terms of, you know, um, autocracy, which, of course, bring, uh, invoke this uh, masculine I. I identity, um, but there's so much more to it. Uh, it's really important that we go deeper than that and see some of the nuances in history. Mm. Yeah, that, that nuance is something that is missing uh, very conspicuously and regularly from all of the conversations um, that we've I've been seeing and trying to stay out of on the internet. <laughs> um, and so I appreciate you, you bringing in all of those aspects. And I I wonder if you could just kind of comment on what we're seeing happening right now and like sort of place it in the broader, the broader historical picture for people who are maybe just now starting to get aware of the way uh, things have been unfolding in Eastern Europe um, and the way, uh, the way world wars are begun. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, First of all, you know, it's really important that we, I I think, at this point, seeing what has happened, um, before I get to to answering your question specifically, what's happening in Ukraine is an atrocity. um, And I think we have to recognize that um, Putin and his actions are the actions of a war criminal. And uh, there must be accountability for this egregious blitzkrieg attempt. Um, I think that's vitally important. Um, 
you know, right now we're seeing Kharkiv, Donetsk, uh, and other parts of Ukraine now under Russian siege with increasing military advancements in places like Kyiv, um, where we are seeing many innocent people uh, who are who are dying, who are being killed, including children. And, and these actions must not go unnoticed, right? There is a price that this regime must pay. But what's happening, I think, is the narrative in the media and on conversations like on social media are sort of lacking context. They're lacking historical context um, and and generational context, right? A lot of people don't understand the remnants of the Cold War um, and how that has impacted our approach to this conflict and this crisis. Um, you know, a lot of the language you're seeing is sort of... Uh, painting a broad brush, right? All of Russia should pay, right? Instead of the regime, the Putin regime must pay. Um, and what that's doing is it's creating a xenophobia, just like what we saw after 9-11, right? After 9-11, you know, you saw a lot of racial profiling policies get passed by the Bush administration. Um, and you saw lots of xenophobia, Islamophobia in particular. Um, and we still have so much work to do in 2022 with fixing that, mm -hmm. uh, right? 2001, here's 2022, and we still have an issue of Islamophobia in the United States and, and the Western world. And we're, we're, we've gotten better, but we're not there yet. And so um, in addition to that, I, I look, something as, as recent as the COVID-19 pandemic, right? You had Donald Trump up at the podium calling it, quote unquote, the Chinese virus. And what did that do? That created a lot of anti-Asian sentiment, um, hatred and, and hate crimes against the AAPI community. Um, listen, these things carry consequences. And what, what really is... Um, concerning for me is that the same folks who have stood on the position of justice for, for, for Muslims when they were unfairly targeted, for Asian Americans when they were unfairly targeted, now we see sort of the same conversation, but it seems like many, many liberals and many friends of mine who are very smart individuals, by the way, are not being careful with the language that they're using. And that's creating a lot of problems. And I think it will will, you know, uh, create structural problems that will be very difficult to undo um, years to come, especially with the fact that in 2022, our nuclear capabilities are much more advanced than they were than the last Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to be under understanding that if this continues to accelerate and escalate toward a, a world war, um, the consequences will be extraordinarily devastating environmentally, um, politically. Our, our humanity could be potentially lost. And, and of course, we don't want to sound the alarms and, you know, uh, make it seem like the world is coming to an end. But it could. I mean, you know, it very well could based on what is what is possible. You know, Russia is a nuclear power. China is its is its ally. Just recently, I, I believe Putin has asked President Xi uh, for military assistance. I mean, we don't know what the outcome of this is going to be, but uh, you know, we need to be we need to be conscious of the realities that exist on the other side. Yeah, and it's always interesting to me. I think um, 
Shout out to friend of the pod, Lee Camp, for a tweet that I'm probably going to butcher and try to paraphrase. But he said they basically you have much more in common with the people in other countries than you do with the systems of power and the people that are making these decisions and sending people to war. Um, And that's one thing I always think about. I mean, my personal experience with all the Russians I've ever met is that they're cool as hell. They're funny, dark sense of humor, and also have a real sense of realism about the world and how it can change on a dime for you, which is something I think Americans don't have as much, a sense of like our own instability and vulnerability. Um, And I feel like we would probably... I mean, there's been massive anti-war protests in Russia. Last I saw, and this is only a couple of days ago, those numbers are probably higher now, it was like 13,000 people arrested. And that's, you know, going into the prison system run by Putin. <laughs> so you can just imagine. Um, and those people deserve our solidarity too. So yeah, I appreciate you saying all that is my point that we have so much more in common with the folks, the average people probably in China, in Russia, in everywhere in the world than we do with our governments. That's right. Definitely. And I mean, the fact that you do have so many Russians in Russia standing up and putting their lives on the line, mm-hmm. I think, should speak to our interests as Americans. If our interest is to stand with Ukraine, right, and to stand with, you know, President Zelensky and what he's trying to do in, in keeping Ukraine uh, a sovereign state, you know, it is our goal then to sort of align with what some of these uh courageous Russian protesters, what they're doing on the ground, because they are putting their lives on the line. And I would say the majority of Russians don't want um, a a war. Um, You know, I think, um, you know, what's interesting is I think the share of Russians who um, have begun to uh, oppose the war has doubled since the escalation has uh, kept on going. Um, and, and I think that's really important to know. Um, yeah, I, you know, so I, will things change um, based on that fact? I don't know, um, right? I think it's, it's important to note that Putin may not consider um, what his people want to do. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we, we owe them a little bit of some gratitude for, for standing up and, and, and again, putting their lives on the line. Mm. Yeah. I think you're really, um, like you're, you're both really speaking to the important piece of propaganda, um, that comes into play here when we think about like why we are so compelled to pick a side, um, in a conflict where, you know, the people of neither of these states have chosen this conflict. Um, it was chosen by their regimes, just like um, every other conflict is started by regimes, not people. Um, and it's in the best inf- interest of both of those regimes to, um, to have the people be thought of as the state. Um, and yeah, and I, I really appreciated what you brought up about Islamophobia after 9-11 because, yeah, that is completely still going on. And it's a tool that has been used to um, keep people in the United States um, with, a, with a villain, to a vision of a villain that we can kind of grasp and, um, and use as a placeholder because we don't want to accept that the villains are the people in power um, across the board. Um, So, 
I guess my question would be to you, what are some ways that we can sort of um, respond when we hear some of this like very non-nuanced and very kind of surprisingly xenophobic, um, you know, rhetoric come up in conversations with our friends and, you know, people that we interact with who we care about and we want to have constructive conversations. Like, how do we, how do we bring this in, in a way that's not like condescending or, um, that's not like asking people to sit down and, and, and discuss, you know, centuries of history. <laughs> yeah. Cause there was time for that. Um, but, uh, I mean, I do right now, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but these days, right. We don't have that much time. Yeah. I feel like there we're so, we're so crunched for time because we're so busy now. I've, you know, now that the, the pan- pandemic is quote unquote over, like we're all stressed yeah. for, for time, right. It's not over. Um, obviously right. Um, right. there are concerns, um, still, but, um, I, Look, I think part of part of it is ed, number one education, um, um, and acknowledgement. Number one, um, you know, uh, just as I opened this conversation by saying, "Look, let's 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 understand what we could agree on. Let's talk about what we could agree on," and that is the fact that you know Ukraine is currently enduring a very harsh. Uh, circumstance that has been brought upon them by the Putin regime. We have to acknowledge that. I think that that's step one. Step two is to educate, however, right? Um, and that is to say, look, you know, this is really bad, and we, you know, we have to we have to hold the regime accountable. But let's also recognize too that these actions that. Uh, the, the Russian regime is um, putting in place on Ukraine are, are similar, are similar to that of other regimes uh, placed upon other societies, right? So, you know, uh, looking at, for instance, what the, you know, the United States has done um, in places like uh, Panama, Grenada, Iraq, Afghanistan, attempts in Cuba and other sovereign Latin American territories, right? It seems like the world it seems like the world is so united against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that, that this is inspiring, by the way, and, and noble. We should be united and we need to spread love of, uh, for others and engage in more charitable actions to help those in need, which we need so much in our society after this pandemic and the severe isolation that we've all endured. But it sparks the question on this double standard in world affairs on what country gets a pass when is it okay to invade and who is it okay to invade, right? So Mm -hmm. the countries I just mentioned are predominantly black and brown countries, not predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Ukraine, predominantly white. Mm -hmm. So which which should prompt us to think of the role of race in this, right? Where was the global unity in calling calling out the, the invasions that I mentioned earlier? You know, and it's not just the United States. Right. It's right. also uh, it's also China, what they've done in, in Africa and even in, uh, Muslims in their own country. We, 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 heard, we heard about it for for a few moments in the media and then it sort of dissipates. Right. So so to understand the role of race in all of this, I think, is is somewhere we, where we can communicate with our friends. Right. Um, 
Just just last week, Reuters, as well as the New York Times, reported that uh, African nationals, for instance, in Ukraine, are being put to the back of the refugee line by Ukrainian authorities. Mm-hmm. You know, many 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 of them uh, being victims of borderline hate crimes, being discriminated against, kicked. Right. So th- th- there is a racial component here that shouldn't be ignored simply because Russia is the aggressor. Right. We should stand against. You know, we shouldn't stand against them by any means necessary and and ignore all aspects of race. There should be an equal standard here. Racism is a a global problem. Mm -hmm. And and also acknowledging sort of other historical instances is important. So we can have um, a sort of an uh, an equal understanding of justice, a, a linear understanding of justice. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And on, on, when you're bringing all that up, like the ongoing, you know, like, the elephant in the room of Israel, uh, our largest ally, uh, basically appropriating Palestine, um, you know, through decades of violence. And, um, and then when you look at the United States itself, I mean, we essentially just invaded uh, <laughs> all the indigenous uh, uh, tribes and cultures and um, societies that were already here. And so we have this like grand history of, of doing exactly what we're now all up in arms against Russia for doing. So I think it's, it's hard to look at that, um, mirror. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think maybe to me, like it, it speaks to, for me, like part of why it's it, some people, many people feel like it's so important to stand up now but also there we have these blinders. I, and I wonder if you could, you could talk a little bit about the role that um, uh, the media plays in confront and, and kind of taking this complex reality and making it a very simple reality and then in, um, sort of misleading people to, to, um, to feel like there is maybe no precedent here, <laughs> whereas there certainly is one historically. So um, where I think, to your first point, um, the media, um, and, and I think y- you had already touched on this already in, in, in your line of questioning, um, mm-hmm. it, there is this lack of differentiation, right? Differentiating between the regime and the people living under them. Um, it's, it's almost as if, you know, the Americans are doing this. I'm not doing it right. Um, (laughs) the, the the Americans invaded Afghanistan. I personally did not invade Afghanistan. My government Mm -hmm. did. Um, you know, recently Mila Kunis came out who is Ukrainian and I believe she might also be partly Russian. I'm not sure, but I, I know she's definitely Ukrainian. Um, you know, said, look, I, I hope that when we, when we say Russia, shouldn't um you know russia is 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 you know committing a war crime that we're not saying the russian people because like we said earlier many of these russian people are protesting this war so what i think is critically important in our discourse right now is that we do differentiate between the regimes and the people living under them when we say russians are doing this or or, or russians are hurting them it doesn't get interpreted properly or parsed out by viewers or readers, especially if you're not versed in international relations. And not everybody has to be an international relations scholar of world affairs to know this, right? But there is a a tremendous amount of baseless claims that lack historical knowledge and the geopolitical complexities of the region. Um, And that is what really sets the discourse on uh, a very bumpy path. 
And it leads us to these problems of painting this, this, this broad brush and, 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 and essentially discriminating, you know, against um, certain groups, which is what's, what's, what, you know, what's bound to happen. You know, look, I mean, you're seeing also the, the role of corporations as well, you know, the role that corporations are playing in this. And now let, let me, let me, let me sort of parse this out into two strands. One, I think we need to accept some of what, uh, what is uh, coming about because of the sanctions. We, I, would, I would prefer, to be quite honest, that we do engage in more sanction-oriented policy rather than dropping bombs. I'd rather see economic sanctions than bombs. Um, so let me just put that on the table. Um, diplomacy is, is, I think, uh, takes a higher precedence here. But what you are seeing now coming from the sanctions is a host of corporate conglomerates that are now divesting from Russia. And you're seeing other people in the United States, you know, mimic what they're seeing, you know, the, the, the commercial entities do. And they're they're doing it as a form of protest. So you're seeing people pour Russian vodka into the sewers in the city. But what you're also seeing as a response to that is people, you know, making disparaging comments about Russian restaurants owned by, you know, you know, Russian immigrants who immigrated to the United States years ago, right? Which they probably don't even approve of this war. And yet you're seeing these actions. Um, so these s- sanctions, while I, I, I favor them, more than I would uh, bombs. Um, I I do think they will have consequences, and and not just social consequences as 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 far as you know creating this Russophobia, this xenophobia, but also uh, in um, in 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 economic terms, you're going to see Russia essentially resort back to its communist oriented economic policies. It's Soviet-oriented economic policies of self-reliance because it now it's being t- completely ostracized and isolated from the global economic system. And that, by the way, has the potential to hurt some of the most poorest of Russians, working-class Russians, people who have you know nothing to do with this war. And in addition to that, there is an American interest here as it's going to hurt working class Americans economically. We're already seeing that. We're already seeing that happen here in the United States with oil prices, energy prices, food prices are going up and they're gonna keep going up if we don't find some sort of solution and we don't bring this conflict to an end. That should be a driving factor to motivate us to end this conflict, by the way. So, um, you know, there are numerous implications of this and the media seemingly has not really communicated it, I don't think, in an effective way. But I think with if, if this economic crisis continues in the direction that it is going, I think that the media will have to face it. Um, I think they will have to face the, the economic realities and uh, uh, correct its uh, approach in, in the discourse. Yeah, totally. It's interesting how, you know, those kind of um, material and class issues, of course, always get left off the table, especially in the mainstream media. I wonder why, she says sarcastically. Um, kind of just um, 
maybe cycling back to something we touched on earlier, what would you say are some of the, like, I know this is such a long, complex topic, but if you were going to kind of nutshell, like, um, a dummy's guide to, like, Ukrainian-Russian history that we need to understand to um, be, you know, speak a little bit more educatedly about this war and what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So, so I would say, you know, um, for one, you know, you've had, you know, the, the history of Ukraine, I like to think of it as uh, kaleidoscopic and uh, ambivalent, um, put together kaleidoscopic ambivalence, um, <laughs> because it's sort of situated and geographically, you just see, you can see it, right? It's situated right between Russia and Europe, right? It's it's this in-between place. Um, and its history is carried out as an in-between place. Um, it's pulled in various directions, caught in that east-west divide. Um, it's been on the cusp many, at many times of being its own independent state, but also pulled in both eastern and western traditions based on the historical circumstance. So this is not the first time Ukraine and Russia have collided necessarily. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, just to kind of sum up and, uh, you know, th- th- I mean, I could go as far back as the 1200s, right? Um, you know, the establishment of Ukraine goes back, uh, uh pretty far known as the, uh, Kievan Rus. Uh, the state included much of present day Ukraine, Bel- Belarus and Russia along the, the Volga. Um, I think it's important to note that Ukraine does have Slavic roots. It's an amalgam of Eastern Slavic tribes and Scandinavian. So it was a mix of early Slavic and European cultures. And then you had the the Mongol invasion uh, in the 13th century, which sort of changed the dynamic, uh, established uh, the Tatar language and the development of the Muscovoy uh, state. Um, and also invited uh, sort of Turkic cultures as well uh, into the mix. Um, but then there was after, you know, after Catherine II, you know, Catherine II um, uh, really wanted to push forward a lot of Peter uh, the Great's um, ambitions of westernization um, in order to advance its, its, its trade empire. Um, because Russia had been lacking um, its ability to keep up with the West. And Catherine II was uh, very much um, 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 uh, fascinated with Western culture, in particular, uh, the Enlightenment philosophy, uh, that of, uh, you know, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Voltaire and all that. Um, and so there was this this push toward the West uh, in Russia for for during her era. But after that, there, Ukraine was sort of split up between various territories. And, and uh, the goal for Ukraine at that time was to encourage this German into integration and, and at the same time to sort of thin out the Turkic population. Um, during the First World War, most of Europe um, and in Russia, you saw a, a revitalization of, of nationalism as, as with most war, there's this push toward nationalism, like you know, be one with your country and fight for your country. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in Russia too, right? Russia, Russia uh, under Tsar Nicholas II, that, you know, the, the goal was is that this was going to bring Russia together again. And Russia had endured so, so many crises that, you know, the war was thought of as this moment where maybe Russia can unite. Um, but that, that obviously um, didn't, 
really happen. Um, in fact, the, it led to a revolution in Russia. Um, but there have been long-standing debates on um, the identity of Russia, the identity of Ukraine, and that goes back to the 17th and 18th centuries onward. Uh, the debate on identity is also something that comes about in full force after the Russian Revolution in 1917 and during the Russian Civil War. What does it mean to be Soviet? What about the culture, the culture and language of various nationalities of the former Russian Empire that now is sort of in this place of limbo, right, during the Russian Civil War? Um, where do they go from here? Um, you know, uh, Germans uh, aimed to uh, replace what was known as uh, the Rada, the uh, the Ukraine Congress, and sort of implement a puppet government. And that was in 1918, during the height of the Russian Civil War. Um, and that led to many splits um, and sort of heightened the conflict of the Russian Civil War. At, at some point, Leon Trotsky um, works out a deal with the Germans. It's known as the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, where the, it sort of like keeps them at bay and created a temporary peace accord uh, between them. And so then you had this three-way uh, competition between the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, and Ukrainian nationalists. Um, and um, it was... It was really difficult for um, after after the fall of the Russian Empire for Ukrainians to really establish a, a sovereign state. And it wasn't just Ukraine. It was many of the other um, regions of, of Russia that were also seeking to create their own uh, state. You know, Kazakhstan, Slovakia, Lithuania, you know, all these different regions trying to create uh, their own their own ability to, of self-rule. Um, the Bolsheviks, interestingly enough, tried to offer this new policy, which was called Kordonizatsiya. Kordonizatsiya translates to nationalities policy. And Russian historians note Kordonizatsiya as being um, sort of this affirmative action policy that sought to lift up um, many of the cultures of, of Russia that were very diverse. You had many uh, Islamic cultures, Asian cultures in Russia uh, that saw themselves as states, not necessarily Russian. And it's a, the, the policy of, of nationalities determined that all Soviet organs, courts, administrations, and local power be composed of the greatest degree possible of people who knew the culture, the customs, and the habits and language of the local population. It was an affirmative action policy. Um, and so um, Ukraine, they tried to do that in Ukraine. And eventually the, the, the Bolsheviks won, Soviets won. Um, many of the peasants were attracted to the Bolsheviks. Um, Jewish civilians were attracted to the Bolsheviks because they were subjected to pogroms by nationalists and whites, whites being Mensheviks. Um, uh, that's not to say that the Bolsheviks did not uh, partake in any anti-Semitic actions against Jews. They did, but many... Uh, Jews in Ukraine saw the Bolsheviks as the safer, the safer of all three. Mm. Um, and so, you know, 
it's 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 interesting because you saw that conflict you see this conflict during the russian civil war this sort of three-way fight for for uh self-rule and ev- eventually the the bolsheviks win and 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 um i would say that um cordonizatia nationality's policy isn't successful in the long term because urbanization and institutionalization, I think, proved problematic with the Russian language having been geared toward individuals in the workplace and, and, and then sort of being forced to know the language in order for workers to travel back and forth and also partake in, um, uh, you know, instances where they can try and make a living and try to take part in society. Um, so there, there were problems with it as well. And of course, you know, um, when Stalin comes to power, um, Ukraine endures just a horrific famine, um, you know, uh, where, where, where tons of innocent people are, you know, forced to take part in the, the five-year plan, um, forced industrialization, forced collectivization, and um, uh, that led to food being stolen, grain being withheld, and many people who resisted the Soviets to, in terms of trying to withhold their grain or, or force them to partake um, were arrested. And um, of course, that was um, that was a, that was a very that was a very sad part of that history. And I, I think that that's also at root of why Ukraine also has um, genuine, I think. Um, um, concerns about Russia. Does Russia have their best interest when it comes to, um, you know, rule in Ukraine? Um, so, you know, what is some of the roots here? Of why does why does this divide exist? I think it's a you know there you can see that there um, in the the famine, of course, um, but and, and you can see also you know in terms of what Russia sees in Ukraine, you know, the, the ability to carry out uh, more power as well in the region. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation, but it's, it's, it's also about identity too. Where, where do they, where, where are they situated? And I don't think it should be up to us, by the way, to determine their identity. They should be the ones that determine their identity and work this out. And I'm not saying we don't help out. Um, we should be helping to the best way possible. We're seeing people. We're seeing people donate. We're seeing people um, uh, send money and, and donate blankets, um, medicine, you know, to, to help the Ukrainian people. But this is geographical and based on national identity. And I don't know if we really fit in that conversation as Americans. Thank you. Um especially for that last point, but also for that fantastic rundown of a lot of years of history, um, very <laughs> relatively concisely. So thank you so much. And yeah, I think it, it does. I think I see a lot of parallels with the Middle East um, as well as the area that I've studied more intensely um, in that, you know, it's an issue of autonomy, an issue of self-determination in which imperialist um, you know, regimes want to expand power and usually the uh, poor and working people in the countries that are being uh, acquired resist. And, um, and I think it's, 
it's a uh, it's an important thing for us to, I think, find solidarity in in, in the fact that um, powerful regimes um, are gonna powerful regime, <laughs> um, but also like in the fact <clears throat> that there is this like really rich history of of effective resistance when this happens. Um, of revolutions all over the world and of ongoing resistance to occupation. I mean, I think, you know, we can look at Palestine and see ongoing resistance to occupation happening there in a really, you know, important way. Um, and, you know, I, it kind of makes me think, would, would the world be up in arms about, about Ukraine if it, if it was full of Arabs? Um, <laughs> or full of Africans um, who, you know, majority, you know, who aren't as easy for the um, the white people in this country to relate to. Um, but yeah, so I wonder if you could speak on some of on some of those parallels a little bit, but also um, just kind of touch on on ways that we can think of constructively, you know playing a role in, in changing some of this um, overly simplified narrative that has us in, in um, a space of divisiveness with each other instead of in solidarity with, you know, working class Russians and poor people in the Ukraine equally. Yeah. Um, can I actually also just add to the, the historical part too? Really quickly. Yeah, I'll go right, of course. I'll, of course. I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go right back to this. When I'm talking yeah, about feel free idea. to circle the drain. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, just to, to like talk a little bit about the identity part of it. You know, I mentioned Catherine the second and the 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 you know the push toward westernization. Um, it's important to note that you know Ukraine and Russia equally um, sort of have gone through this period of determining whether they are uniquely Slavophile or Western. Uh, Russia mm. itself, is it uniquely Asiatic? Is it, is it uniquely situated in Russian identity? What is Russian identity anyway? Um, and Ukraine, it's the same thing. Um, Ukraine, I think, tilts more toward Westernization. But this question of where does that region where is it situated in global affairs? That that question still continues today. So it, it started it started early on in the 16th and 17th centuries and continued on, and it still is continuing till today. And I just I wanted I wanted to make mention of that because it's extremely important. Um, because when you talk to Russians or Ukrainians, they're they know the they, they come down on different sides of that of that of that position. Um, some will say they are they are European. There is this European heritage. Others will say that it's unique. It's uniquely Asiatic. It's, it's you know, it's, it's Slavic. Um, um, so it really is, it's an important part too that, that we have to recognize that that's there. And, um, I don't want to minimize it by saying this, but, you know, Benedict Anderson, who wrote Imagine Communities, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's an important yeah. book. Um, talks about nationalism as, and, and, and national identity as being this, this creation. It's a social construct. We create it because we want to know, we want to feel like we're a part of something bigger. It's just this innate psychological desire to want to just be one with people who, around us who we, who we don't really know, but we want to think that we know them. Um, 
So, and, and I'm, again, I'm not minimizing the, the importance that identity plays in Ukraine and Russia, but I also want to make mention that, you know, national identity historically has always been a social construct that is just made out of convenience for our own, you know, self-preservation. So I just wanted to make mention of that. I think it's really an, an important, mm-hmm. important addition. Um, so your question was... Uh, again um how what was it again how we can sort of make make more uh productive assessments of this these situations going forward is that essentially what yeah kind of like how we can think constructively about this and act constructively also because i think part of part of our our you know drive as you know u.s citizens is we want to pick a team we're very like individualistic but also very like we have a lot of this team loyalty that's very contrived and so we want to pick a team and it's like well maybe there's a better action to take than picking a team and maybe there's um, a better way to uh, construct this narrative than what we're being given sarah i don't know if 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 that if there's anything you want to add to that question um, no, I think that pretty well sums it up. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw, I saw you were making a question face and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't, oh. <laughs> I, wasn't. <laughs> I was thinking about what to ask after. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think we need to, uh, encourage clarity and objectivity, um, in, in how we approach the, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Um, you know, you, you, you're right when you say we're seeing sort of this team loyalty and, you know, people are saying, oh, I'm, you know, I just recently, by the way, I, I, saw, I saw a political post by a particular political party and I won't mention what party, but I, I saw this post saying, if you support this party, you're pro-Putin. If you support this party, you're pro-Ukraine. I think that is so divisive and so problematic and unwelcoming and xenophobic on so many levels. Um, It takes away the need when we see posts like that, it takes away the encouragement to look at this more objectively. You know, um, like I'm seeing people who would say, okay, well, you know, maybe we should take a look at NATO and see how has NATO changed over the course of the years preceding the Cold War um, and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, How has that changed? And when somebody expresses such, you know, such inquiry, it seems like we just want to kind of shut them down and say, oh, well, you must be a Putin sympathizer. You know, oh, oh, well, that you're you're a Trump supporter. No, (laughs) it doesn't mean any of that. You know, um, those that, by the way, um, criticized the U.S. going into Iraq, right? Um, <laughs> are, what are they? I mean, it, don't forget, they were originally called anti-American because they were considered, you know, tre- treacherous. Um, and by the way, that term anti-American is such an authoritarian term. Noam Chomsky mentions in his, um, in his interview, he does, a, he does a documentary called Requiem for the American Dream. Really, really cool documentary. Um, highly recommended. He talks about this. You know, that those that sort of stand against or criticize state policies are automatically considered traitors, uh, anti-American. He says, that term isn't used in Italy. When you criticize Italy's policies, you're not called anti-Italian. <laughs> 
So, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uniqueness and peculiarity in the United States that, you know, those who kind of just put into question some of the, the you know, state policies that are being pursued at this very moment in time are, are sort of looked at as, as, you know, traitors to their country when we're seemingly just questioning something. I, I think that, look, you know, NATO is, is necessary. I'm going to say that right here. I think it's extremely necessary. Um, but, you know, we can look at the history and we can say, look, you know, since, you know, the 90s, you know, we've seen Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Slovakia, an enlargement of NATO, if moving further east since that time. And that might be something that we can look at as fueling tensions. I'm not saying that that's what led to Putin you know, going into Ukraine. And, and if it did, you know, yeah, that, you know, that's on him. But we have to look at what might be happening where we could adjust and improve our diplomacy abroad. Because I don't think it should be our goal to have adversaries. And anybody who thinks that is a, is a military realist, and, and that's fine if you want to think that way. But in 2022, when we are dealing with climate change, when we are dealing with public health crises, after public health crises, we shouldn't be thinking how we should um, further antagonize um, our adversaries. We should be thinking about how do we bring people to the table to improve our public health systems, how we could bring people to the table to improve our the climate crisis, improve energy production, get ourselves away from fossil fuels, create a more equitable world, you know, there are ways that we can go about this. And I'm not saying that nobody is trying. I think people are probably trying. But unfortunately, a lot of hawkish ideas are being listened to a lot more than different ideas that might might prompt a different response and maybe maybe a more equitable response, a softer response. Um, you know, and, and don't forget, you know, Men who um, try to, um, uh, uh, you know, say that, 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 okay, well, maybe we should try something like diplomacy. Maybe we should, we, you know, we should be more open or often criticized. Don't forget it was Obama, right? Obama who wanted to be more diplomatic in the world. You know, he, he wanted to talk with the Taliban. Let's have a conversation. And he was immediately criticized. You know, he was chastised by the right. They called him all sorts of names. They called him weak. And of course, you know, through Obama's tenure, things changed. We know that, right? But, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to try something different, um, especially if what we've been doing uh, isn't changing anything. It's been leading to the same result all the time. Um, I, guess, I guess in some, right, it's important that, our goal be de-escalation by any means necessary. Let's try our best to exercise every diplomatic tool possible and also make a concerted effort to bring the two parties to the table uh, rather than see what happens, right? Another thing that's really important is you, you, you are also, I don't know if you heard this, but Donald Trump came out and said we should just we should just bomb Russia and see what happens. That, that's what his, his, that's what he said. Um, 
we need we need to leverage that and say this is what he's saying. We can't do that, right? If we're mm-hmm. if we're if we oppose Trump, then then let's say this is what he's saying. Let's not do that. Let's do something different. Because right now you have Democrats who are considering, you know, what type of military action can be can be utilized at this point in time, and not seeing the outcome that a nuclear fallout could just destroy the entire planet. Well, and I'm sorry, but we're like coming up on the anniversary of the invasion of Iraq right now, you know, and we, I'm sorry, I don't mean to like steamroll Sarah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, you're I'm just fine. Like, <laughs> like on this line of thought, it's like, yeah. And, 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 you know, Joe Biden was one of the biggest um, cheerleaders for the Iraq war. And he, um, you know, so we can't look at this as like partisan, um, you know, one party is going to save us um, from, from war or from, um, from ongoing escalation of conflict, let's say. Um, and I think that, you know, as, as somebody who has been feeling like I've been in an uphill battle with a lot of liberals and progressives, um, for a lot of years who want to believe that all we have to do to end war is get Democrats in office. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it feels like the conversation that we're not having enough, um, is around like how, how, how do we look at the impact of not only war, but any kind of assumption that we should be able to determine other people's outcome in their place. Like sanctions are harmful, you know, like, yes, they're less harmful in certain ways than bombs, but they're harmful. You know, we've seen the, the impact of heart of sanctions in, in Iraq and in Iran and Afghanistan and all over Central America, you know, in Nicaragua, you know, like we're creating a lot of harm through those ways. So I want to, I would like to see, you know, what you're saying is uh, um, the de-escalation method happen. And um, and I really appreciate you bringing in some of these, like, conversational perspectives that can hopefully, like, you know, take a little bit of fuel out of the, like, my team versus your team rivalry fire. Um, and I guess, you know, before I, like, I kind of just had that f- the f- follow-up idea and I I'm sure that Sarah has something that she wants to ask so before I like jump into my rabbit hole I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let Sarah jump in here because I know we're running a little short on time sure so um I'm you know I'm an academic librarian one of the things I try to teach when I teach information literacy is these kind of metacognitive processes and how you can approach information not just from a critical perspective, but also realizing that there are multiple truths and perspectives out there. Um, so I often think that, you know, we maybe can't make all the powers that be sit down and cite a peace treaty, but in our own minds, we can try to commit to be a person that models how you keep multiple truths in your head. Putin is a monster. U.S. imperialism is monstrous. We need to stand with the people of Ukraine. We need to stand with Russians, who are, you know, um, who are not don't have any power over what their government does. We need to stand with Americans who also don't have any power over what our government does. 
Um, so I'm just curious if as a scholar, um, as a teacher, and just as a citizen, if that's kind of something you try to impart in other folks. Yeah, so two things. One, we're still a democracy, I think. I mean, there are problems, <laughs> you know, but I think we still have the ability to voice our concerns and the majority does have the power to, you know, tilt things in their direction, I think. Um, so as, as Americans, um, who are thinking about this crisis and who want to be able to think of these things objectively, as you said, seeing the, the, those two ends, right. Understanding that Putin is uh, a murderer and also recognizing, you know, um, that American imperialism is also real, um, that is important. Um, and having conversations and being able to educate yourself will help the direction of policy. But as a scholar, I want to say two things. Number one, on a personal level, when this all happened, it was, it was very, very difficult for me, actually. Um, you know, and I, I might, I might, I might get a little bit, you know, um, internal here. Um, but you know, um, I love Russian history and culture. Part of, you know, what drives me to write um, and publish and teach is is this love of the rich history um, that is there. And so when all of this happened, I I was I was confounded. I really was, and I almost didn't know what to think. You know, part of me was almost in disbelief. And I remember I, I wrote my dissertation advisor and I, I, I said, I, I can't write this week. I can't write um, because number one, I, I was so disappointed, right? I was so disappointed in the fact that, um, you know, uh, Russia did what it did. And, and notice how I contextualized that Russia painting that broad brush, not separating and differentiating mm -hmm. the regime from the history, the regime from the people. Right. Um, we are, as a society, I think very reactionary as Americans. We are very reactionary. So, so there's always this knee jerk that happens after something happens to us or something happens in the world. And we have a hard time really just sitting for a moment and, and looking into all of this. Uh, so I think, I think what's so critically important is that we, aim to educate ourselves as much as possible, recognize the um, similarities of imperialism around the world, whether it is U.S. imperialism, whether it is Russian imperialism, or in recent days, China. Um, we, we, we just need to be able to, I think, be more open to and to having these kinds of conversations, we're not seeing these kinds of conversations play out. We're seeing people come on the television and say, we need to do this. We need to wipe out Russia. We need to wipe out Putin. And, you know, we, I don't think it's up to us to do any of those things. That's, a, that's sort of being motivated again by this notion that the United States has to take a stand and has to intervene. And I think that is extraordinarily problematic um, and look at what happened with Afghanistan, 20 year long war. Um, we realized that intervention was a severe mistake. Um, and we, we are leaving. And that's, by the way, that's one credit I would give president Biden. I mean, you know, uh, president Biden has acknowledged that that was a problem. Um, and I think made the right decision there. 
Um, but looking at those moments and recognizing the mistakes and also educating ourselves on the Cold War and what the Cold War meant for everyday Americans, the life of, of what it was like, seeing how people with certain belie- beliefs, in particular left-leaning beliefs, by the way, were targeted by the United States government, you know? Um, I mean, you know, if you, you know, espoused somewhat, you know, relevant Marxism, you were, you were looked at as a, a, a Russian spy back in, uh, during the Cold War days. And so we, we, need to, we need to be cognizant of the history. We need to look to history to teach us something. Um, I think that is so important for us. We can't ignore it. A lot of people say that what they're seeing in Russia is a, re- a, a repeating of history, that history repeats itself, you know, comparing, you know, the Russian regime to the Nazi regime. And, and, and you might be able to make some comparisons. Um, but, but if you, if, 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 if that individual is so keen on seeing history as, as a mirror into what's happening, then they have to look deeper. They have to have the conversations that are uncomfortable sometimes, um, and and I think that's I think that's what I what I, what I would say. And um, you know, as a scholar, how I've moved on with my work and how I've moved on to kind of accept what's happening is understanding that the regime is different from the people, and that I can condemn the regime, but I can admire. Russia's history. I think that that's okay. And it's okay to do that. Um, as is any other society that you study. So. Mm. I really appreciate that. I feel that I feel like that is, it's so important. And I, and I appreciate you having that conversation with us. Um, it's not, you know, especially during you know, the ongoing weirdness of pandemic. We're not getting out to these academic uh, circles that often, at least I'm not, I'm not, I'm not um, in, engaging with these um, subjects on, in as, as thoughtful and as historically based a way as I would like to be. And as, as all, like self-reflectively based as I think, I think that's a really important point that you speak to the, the, the notion of looking inward at our reactions to what we see going on around us and to our uh, the way we feel entitled or not to have an opinion <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for sharing that perspective. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. I think, um, I think it comes with the years of teaching comparative politics. Um, if you speak to comparativists, one of the things that they say is that to, to understand other, and, and as a comparativist, what you do is you, you, you study other countries, you study other nations, and you actually first start by being introspective. And if you can be introspective, you, you can be more open um, in understanding other, other societies. That's very zen. Yeah. I feel like that's a great place <laughs> to maybe kind of bring it, bring it on home. Is there anything else bring you'd like to add, Michael, before we go? No, I just, you know, I think, I, look, you know, I, I, I can't emphasize it enough. Peace right now, um, stabilization and de-escalation is so key um, to making sure that we, we, don't, we don't see anything um, worse happen. Um, and, um, you know, I hope that people can start having conversations like we are. And um, I hope that these conversations um, yield productive outcomes for our 
uh, policies that we we set forth, um, both uh, in foreign policy and domestic policy. Awesome. I hope so too. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure. thank you. Th- thank you for having me. Folk fam coming at your ear holes. Folk and faces. <laughs> I went for I went for ear holes. <laughs> you went for ear holes. I went to your whole folk and face. <laughs> Clearly we're on different drugs today. <laughs> Joy is just more committed than I am. I'll only give you the ear hole. That's it. That's all you get. <laughs> Uh, my boxing trainer tells me I have to learn to control my power. So <laughs> maybe that's the note, note to self. Uh, don't folk the whole face. At Only once. folk the maybe ear just hole. one ear at a time. <laughs> folk one ear hole at a time, folks. You've heard it here, folks. Folks, you've heard it here first. Wow. <laughs> All right. We are special today. Um, I feel like this is just what talking about war does to us. It just sends us into into straight silliness. Yeah, because what else can you do to <laughs> counter that, you know? It's like human <laughs> beings are capable of the most amazing shit and the most fun shit and the most funny shit. And then we're capable of, like, the worst shit. I don't know why we keep choosing the worst shit. It seems like it's not really working out for us, but... 
Right? And it's it's consistently all of us. Yeah. I feel like we all are consistently good and, and bad. There are definitely some people who are more on the bad mm-hmm. or more on the good end of the spectrum most of the time. But, like, it's so interesting, right? We have this very, like, us versus them mentality that we get into where we're, like, we are the good people and they are the bad people. And I say we, like because I firmly do this on the regular. It's like my jam. (laughs) (laughs) It's my song. (laughs) It's them, not me. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I walk down the street singing it. Uh, But, you know, and on like a more serious sense, when it comes down to, you know, international conflict, I, I feel like we, it's a real challenge to avoid going into the us versus them mentality, don't you think? Yeah, I think especially for Americans for some reason, because we're very, not all of us, obviously, but, and I'm definitely, oh, I just want to say first, I'm definitely guilty of a lot of us versus them thinking myself. But at least when it comes to war stuff, I tend to think of, like, maybe just my experience living in this country and being just ashamed and horrified by things the government has done, that I would not think, I would think citizens in other countries, including Russia, feel similarly. In fact, they're out there in force. There was this woman who was a Russian TV producer and held up that sign in the background. Like, obviously, there's a, you have more in common with the people in those other countries than the, gov- the governments have more in common with each other. <laughs> right. Like, people don't start wars. Governments start wars. And, like, specifically, like, tyrants and oligarchs um, who don't necessarily always look evil, um, do that. And, uh, and they are regularly like throwing everybody under the bus who, you know, flies under their flag. And, um, you know, I know Eddie Izzard is one of my favorite references, but it's like his whole bit of, of, wait, is Eddie Izzard going by, by female pronouns now? She, her bit about, yes, I think she is. Um, yeah, I believe so. So her whole bit about uh, flags and, you know, how, you know, you can take over another country if you have a flag and uh, but not if you don't. Like, oh, oh, but we're Indians. We live here. Like, oh, but do you have a flag? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, you know, so it's like we wave these flags back and forth. I feel like we'll probably edit that out. That's probably just me being a little bit stoned. <laughs> Um, and thinking about comedy to counteract thinking about tragedy, <laughs> as I do. <laughs> um, but really, you know, when I see flags of different countries, I think those are governments that we are waving back and forth at each other. Those are not people. And um, it's it's really it's really sad to see how we don't, get that even as we've had presidents who don't represent us as a majority for the entirety of our existence as a nation. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for me too, I see it more like us versus them thinking about average people than I do thinking about, you know, being critical and pushing back against what systems of power are doing. So I guess I don't understand blaming powerless people and also like people were 
as a human being, you were granted a very special incarnation, and this special incarnation came with the gift of your intelligence. Your intelligence allows you to hold more than one thoughts in your head at the same time. If you're not using your intelligence to, like, its capabilities, I feel like that's just a freaking insult to whatever the creator is, according to what you <laughs> want to believe. Um, but, like, it's just, like, Putin's a monster. U.S. imperialism is also monstrous. The people in Ukraine are suffering and deserve our support. The people in Russia also deserve our support because they're suffering too. Like, we deserve each other's mm-hmm. support because we're all suffering under these systems. You know, re- reality is right? this and that and everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. And a thing that I've been trying to come to terms with is, like, we can also not like each other and still not be against each other. Mm. You know, like there are definitely people in this world that I think are shitty people. I will still stand up for their right to exist as people. Um, you know, I will still um, I will still treat them, you know, like they exist. I'm not going to just like um, I'm not just going to sort of blanket like write them off. I mean, maybe out of my life, but not off of the face of the earth just because I don't like them. And um, and so it's like we we get into this very warlike mentality when it's like our when we're angry at an entity that we have no control over. And um, I mean, obviously, that's capitalism's fault. Yeah. <laughs> <because> we should, <laughs> we should just be burning down the system. But <laughs> Well, yeah, that's why the idea of collective rights is so important. And even if, you know, in the founding of this country, the people that found it were problematic and those rights weren't meant for everybody, I still feel like those are, it's a really important idea and an ideal we should still be living into (laughs) and absorbing and making our own. So that's, you Mm -hmm. know, it's always really disturbing to see people, I mean, like the Assange case is a perfect example of this to me because people will like, justify their feelings about a case that freedom of the press for everybody lies on with, I don't think Julian Assange is a nice person. I don't like Julian Assange. I'm like, you motherfuckers, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That is not it, how rights work. <laughs> they cover, <laughs> they cover fucking serial killers. They cover people who are assholes on the internet. They cover everybody because they're collective rights. So, mm-hmm. and also, I don't know how you know Julian Assange isn't a nice person. What, like, you hanging out with him all the time or something? Like, so. <laughs> Yeah, right? It's like, it's so much easier to believe someone is capable of terrible, terrible things if they're not nice. And, like, I get that. Like, it's part of our human, I think, filtration system or whatever. You know, we're like, oh, you're not nice. No, thank you. But, like... At the same time, if someone is doing incredible amounts of good for the world uh, in exposing government corruption and crimes and cover-ups like WikiLeaks is doing, then, you know, you need to, you know, these are all the same people who say you shouldn't cancel problematic artists because you have to see the the art, not the artist. It's like, well, do that with Assange if you don't like him. 
<laughs> do that with literally anyone. It all applies. Right, exactly. Um, I don't know. I might be contradicting myself a little bit. I should not be conflating those no, two things. No, I think it's... But it's interesting that it's the two, that it's the similar people. No, and I think that actually is a really great analogy, and I never thought about that, because I'm, I'm the kind of person that will also then go out and be like you sometimes do to separate the art from the artist and things like, you know, like I will make those arguments, but then I'll make them for Assange too. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've tried to hold out some glimmer of hope or magic for this case. I've been surrounding him with energy, putting all my witchy energy to it and doing, you know, you know, 3d (laughs) world, like not like the best organizing, but, you know, trying to stay involved with it, call, write letters, write letters to him in prison donate money, do whatever, and I'm just, like, holding out this scrap of hope, but it's, like, so dwindling, especially after that ruling yesterday, and it's just such a, like, mind fuck that this is, like, you can do this to somebody <laughs> if it's... I mean, that's exactly the desired outcome, yeah. right, is, like, it's supposed... He's being made an example exactly. of, and it's supposed to discourage people, like, it's supposed to make us all feel like, oh... You can't expose the government because they make, and it's like, you know what? For every Assange, there's like probably like a hundred other people whose names we don't know who are busily at work hacking and leaking and hacking and leaking and hack and leak. Yeah. And leak and hack and leak. I am so slightly stoned. Sorry. You're awesome. You're great. I like that. I would have that in my head. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think, too, like, I'm not letting the government destroy my fucking, you know, aspirations that we can live a better existence on this planet as humans. I'm not letting them ever destroy that. And I'll take that with me to the end. Even if I think it's going to happen in another fucking lifetime, I'm not going to see. And that doesn't mean I don't, you know, have my feelings about everything now. But, like, fuck you. You don't get to take that from me. No matter what. And Julian's already made a fucking difference in history. The cat's mm-hmm. already out of the bag. Like, I think he's going to go down in, you know, as history as really being a game changer, I think. And he's, even just what he's going yeah. through right now exposes the system for what it is. And how scared the system is to protect itself. That they would go to this many lengths and this much expense to go after one person. Like, that's fear. That's the system acting out of fear. So if nothing else, that, you know, should give us a little hope. Yeah, and his impact is being felt, you know, no matter no matter what his name does in the world mm-hmm. and his legacy, his impact is is being felt. I mean, just in the way that WikiLeaks operates and, you know, it, it changed the game and the the ways that the information he's already released has, has, you know, had this incredible effect, ripple effect, um, and just getting more and more and more truth out. So it's like, I, I feel like there, you know, we could, (laughs) I don't know how we're supposed to measure anything on this weird planet and (laughs) dimension that we're in, but like, I like to think that in, if we look at the impact that our, our work has, mm-hmm. then, you know, we can kind of see our footprint, you know, our, like, intellectual or, like, our heart footprint. Our heart Aww. footprint. We're leaving our heart print on the internet. <laughs> That's kind of sweet. <laughs> well, I think so because, I mean, I, I do think 
you know, your actions affect others, because at some point we're, we're all connected on a source level. This is me getting really woo, which is... <laughs> I apologize for any material. Do it. I smoked yeah. a sativa and a hybrid together. For any Go for purely it. materialist leftists <laughs> that have found our pod, I love you all. I'm also a witch, though, so you're going to have to deal with witchy shit from time to time. And woo shit. <laughs> so, like, I don't know what I was saying. But, yeah, I do think, you know, there is that level when you work, change something within yourself, it does have a ripple effect. Even if it's small, it's just one light going on at a time. Um which can be really hard to keep in perspective when the world seems so terrible. And that doesn't make any of the awful things less awful and less daunting. And, you know, but I, I don't know. We got to keep doing what we got to do. So just mm-hmm. use your intelligence. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, you know, whatever kind of intelligence you have, I think mm. the, we all have different yeah. kinds and different degrees totally. of it. So it's like... I feel like we have, you know, I'm like, I have really shitty certain types of intelligence and really great certain types of intelligence. And I never entirely know when, when the twain (laughs) shall meet. (laughs) It's usually really inconvenient when it happens though. um, And really public. Um, But yeah, you know, like we all have certain kinds of intelligence that like we can use in like really cool ways. And, um, I think that, you know, this system that we're all living under has us sort of confused and deluded about our power and our, like, ability to impact fucking anything, but especially ourselves. Like, it has us thinking that we need to, like, take drugs and listen to X, Y, Z to, you know, be better people. And it's like, you know, if we just go deeper into ourselves from time to time, like we'll find some incredible shit. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and that is going to have a really great effect too. Just like all of our external medications. Yeah. Um, I will say taking drugs. Like we're not going to (laughs) still, I was going to say, I will say taking drugs and listening to fish has made me a better person, but (laughs) yeah. Oh, drugs have super helped me too. Like not going to lie. But, yeah. Um, I'm still I'm still an asshole sometimes, oh, yeah. you know, but I feel like I see my assholery so much clearer now. Yes. <laughs> Me too. I'm much I'm much more aware of it. It's not accidental most of the time, most of the time. And um, and also, like, I just recognize that that's there. Like, we all have our things that we're not good at. I'm not good at not being an asshole all the time. <laughs> I'm not good at holding frog pose for this long, so I think I might need to wrap it up. Um, oh, Sarah, yeah. All right, Sarah. Recording on the floor like a dear hero. Dear listeners, I have been driven from my house by a pestilence, and while the pestilence is taken care of, I am at my dude's house up in Netherland, and I have to hold my MacBook Pro charger into the wall. So with that, yeah. I'm going to let you go, but... We love you at the yeah, Pope fan. But I will. <laughs> <laughs> we do we do love you and and I just hope that we've we've ended on a nice a nice light note mm-hmm. so that you have time to digest all of the super important shit that Michael um laid on us during the interview. Uh listen to that as many times as you need to so you remember the things because like it's important to know history mm-hmm. and see these patterns and see how our like Um, cosmic repetition is going on so that we don't have to be confused when there are 
still wars. <laughs> Word. Because um, they suck, but they are. Yes. And and we need to know why, and we need to know how to deal with them. And we're all learning together. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I love you with the folk fam. I love you too. <laughs>
What the Folk is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Sarah is based on the native lands of Arapaho, Cheyenne, Ute, and Ocheti Shakoan tribes known as Denver, Colorado. Joy is based on the native lands of the Cowlitz, Clackamas, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, known as Portland, Oregon. Our guest on this episode has been Michael Iasilli, whose website is maiasilli.com, and our featured music has been Strange Days, Soul Creature, and Staircase by Michael Anthonia. Our website is whatthefolkpod.com. You can follow us on the socials at whatthefolkpod and contact us at whatthefolkpod at gmail.com. Our theme theme music is from In a Major Key by Joy Damiani, whose music and writing you can find at joydamiani.com. Thank you so much for giving us your precious time in these ever-stranging days. Ah, we'll be back soon with more What the Folk directly in your face. Until next time, as always, don't let the apocalypse 